Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. All right, I gotta tell you, we are really going places on the show this week. First up, we're gonna head to the mountains where Sylvia Vasquez Lovato became the first openly gay woman to climb the Seven Summits, which are the highest mountains on each continent. It was part of her journey to overcome childhood trauma. She has a new book, In the Shadow of the Mountain, that describes it. Then stand-up comedian Curtis Cook is going to explain why you might not want to wear a suit to Red Lobster. And also how his understanding of race as a light-skinned black man really changed when he took a trip to Sierra Leone. Then Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers will pull over and then come into the theater and play us a new song. I've heard it and it's amazing. You don't want to miss it. All right, so that's the plan. Let's get ready to take this journey together, which starts right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. We've sprung forward. The uh, cherry blossoms are blossoming. Everything's going great here in Portland. I'm feeling very excited this week and very excited to play another round of station location identification examination. Are you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a solid maybe. I feel like these are getting harder and harder. <laughs> I think you might be able to get this one. Okay. This, of course, is where I describe a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio, and you've got to try to figure out where I'm talking about. Okay. Maybe because the name of this city is really fun to say, it's been featured in the lyrics of many popular songs, such as I've Been Everywhere by Johnny Cash and Down on the Corner by Credence. Credence Clearwater Revival. Okay. You know everything about music, Elaine. Are you able to cross-reference those two songs in your brain and find the nexus? I think it's Kalamazoo. I think you're absolutely yeah. right. K-K-A-A-L-A-M-A-Z-O-O-O. Oh, what a gal. Was the third thing that you got a gal from Kalamazoo? That song was in there? No, the hint was going to be it's also home to the first outdoor pedestrian shopping mall in the United States. <laughs> no. <laughs> My cat Sharky is from Kalamazoo, R.I.P. <laughs> Look at you. Kalamazoo, where we're on W-M-U-K radio in Kalamazoo, Ooh, Michigan. Shout out to everybody tuning in there and from all across the country. Should we uh, get rolling with the show? Yeah, let's do it. Let's Kalamazoo it. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away. From PRX, it's... Live Wire! 
this week, writer and mountaineer Sylvia Vasquez Lovato. I never saw climbing as a way of conquering. The very first time I came across the Himalayas, I felt a sense of belonging. And comedian Curtis Cook. I wore a suit because I just assumed you had to wear a suit to the Red Lobster. And it turns out you do not need to wear a suit to the Red Lobster. And if you do, everyone assumes you're the manager of that Red Lobster. With music from Patterson Hood and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Lou Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in from all across the country, including in Kalamazoo. Uh, we've got a great show in store for you this week. We asked the audience a question, as we do each week. Uh, the question was, what's your personal Mount Everest? It's because one of our guests actually climbed Mount Everest. Uh, we got those responses. We're going to read them to you coming up in just a little bit. First, though, of course, we've got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is still some good news happening out there. We promise. We looked it up. We verified it. It's a real thing. Elena, what's the best news you heard this week? Oh, no. I got another sports one. <laughs> I like it. You you handle the sports. I handle the animals now. We're both moving out of our comfort zone. I'm into it. It's about a player of the basketball variety mm-hmm. named Bismack Biombo. Uh, who is from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he plays for the Phoenix Suns, but he didn't for a while. He was with the Charlotte Hornets. Mm -hmm. And he was a free agent, which totally makes sense to me. But he recently, like last Friday, signed a contract with the Phoenix Suns for an estimated $1.3 million. Guess how much of that he's going to put in the bank, Luke Burbank? Mm, after taxes and his agent's fee, <laughs> I don't know, a mil? Uh, a little bit less than that. $0.00. What? The reason for that is that Mr. Bismack Biombo is going to be giving the entirety of his season salary to build a hospital in his home country of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The hospital is going to be named after his late father, Francis, Mm. who died last August. He contracted COVID and recovered from it, but it left some lingering health complications. Mm. And Bismack Biombo says, my dad made most of his life about me, my brothers and sisters, and being of service to other people. And he wants to honor that service by having a really needed hospital uh, named after this man that was Biombo's hero. Wow. Amazing. His whole salary. Well, the thing, too, is, I mean, that's like a lot of money in public radio, mm-hmm. over a million dollars. But by NBA standards, it's not a tremendously lucrative contract. Yeah. So it's not like he's going to make $25 million and he's, you know, peeling off 1.3 of that for this yeah. hospital. I mean, that's the totality of it. Yeah. And he has a foundation that in 2020 raised money to give a million dollars in medical supplies to the DRC. So um, really just a person of tremendous service. And apparently well, he is very good at the jump puck off mm-hmm. to round all You're the bases. You're doing so well. Yeah, he gets the touchdown all the time on the Davis <laughs> Cup. <laughs> He's my favorite basketball player for sure now. Definitely next season, I'll be rooting for him especially hard. The NBA broke my heart many years ago when they let my beloved team in Seattle, the Sonics, uh, go away. But I do think Bismack Biombo is very much worth rooting for. So Amen. we'll be looking for him. Hey, something else that we need to be looking for a Narluga, a Elena. What? A what now? A Narluga. 
the hybrid of a narwhal and a beluga. They think this might actually happen up in Canada, where back in 2016, a, a narwhal became separated from its pod, like a young narwhal. And so it was just swimming around like in the St. Lawrence River, which is pretty far south for them. Narwhals are typically up in the Arctic Circle. Yeah. This one is down hanging out with a pod of beluga. Oh, my god! And they, they has distinctive markings. So they've been, they've been getting photographs and, and video with drone of this. They think that this narwhal is about 12 years old. That's right. Uh, the radio audience can't uh, see this, but you were doing you were doing the international sign for. Is that like kind of a unicorn? Is that is that the whale that has a big thing coming out of his head? And yes, that yeah. is the narwhal. Ah. Um, and they think that there's a possibility that this narwhal, that's a male narwhal, because it's been so accepted by this group of beluga, it may mate eventually with a beluga and create the first narluga that they know of. <laughs> Wow. But it comes down to, it turns out, the other beluga more or less broing down with the narwhal, like the male beluga. Mm -hmm. So the narwhal has to become part of what's called a coalition Mm -hmm. in order to reproduce. The other beluga have to be like, all right, this whale is cool enough that we're going to let him be part of our sort of like reproductive situation. Yeah, it's like a like sex-sorted packs kind of a thing. Right. right, and the thing is, it's it's not uncommon for narwhals and beluga to kind of socially associate, but they just nobody's seen a narluga yet, and oh so goodness. they're very excited about it. I also was excited to learn this detail. Did you know what that tusk actually is on a narwhal? Um, magic. It's a sensitive tooth with as many as ten million nerve endings. What? It can grow up to ten feet, but it's a giant tooth. Amazing. Yeah. I think a narwhal dentist is just like an SNL skit <laughs> waiting to happen. <laughs> I like the idea of a narwhal furiously flossing the day before they have to go to the narwhal dentist to try to act like they've been doing it the whole time. Well, the hopes of a narluga. That's the best news that I heard all week. Hey, if you'd like to get a little more good news in your life, and don't we all, you can head over to the Livewire podcast feed where we have an entire podcast dedicated to the best news. It's called The Best News Podcast. Please go check that out. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. She's an explorer in in more ways than one. She was raised in Peru, and then she came to the U.S. where she navigated the highest echelons of Silicon Valley before realizing that she couldn't outrun her childhood trauma. So what she did well, she started climbing, mountains to be specific, Mount Everest, Kilimanjaro, a bunch of others, becoming the first openly gay woman to climb what are known as the Seven Summits. Her new book is In the Shadow of the Mountain, and we talked to her about it in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland last month. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Sylvia Vasquez Lovato. Sylvia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. This is so exciting. Thank you very much, Portland. Thank you. Um, 
this uh, book covers uh, really the span of your life up till now, but let's kind of start in San Francisco in the early 2000s because you're living there and by a lot of outward indications, you're doing pretty well, <laughs> doing great at work, you have a lot of relationships, or let's be honest, a lot of hookups. Yes, I did. You're a very was, popular person. Yes. <laughs> your life seems to be going okay, but what was really going on in your life at that time? Well, I was secretly dealing with addiction. I was a full rage alcoholic, and very, I mean, very few people knew how many times I had been evicted and how many times I had ended up on the ER. Um, and my life was spiraling out of control, especially because um, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. And the emotion, the shame, the trauma had, you know, had chased me in my 20s. And I literally was spiraling out. But on the, you know, on the facade that I was, I had a stable job that I seemed to, you know, to be able to go to fun places and hit places was a way of hiding just the amount of pain and the amount of self-destruction that I was causing myself. So you grew up in a, um, I guess, you say an upper middle class family in Peru? Yes. So you grew up with resources, but it was also a family that was full of secrets, including yes. uh, some, some people that you thought were your cousins that were actually your siblings yes. because your mother had given birth to them earlier, but then was sort of kept from seeing them. What was that story? You know, it was very unfortunate. Uh, my father, you know, was a little older than my mom and he was raised in a very conservative way, you know, very patriarchal way. And he was very possessive. And so when he got together with my mother, he gave her a choice. You know, you can get together with me, but you have to let go of your children. Yet, you know, my mother, as, as any woman, she found a way of trying to see her children uh, and trying to be part of their lives. And unfortunately, she entrusted me at the house with a person that she thought that, you know, she can count on who ended up being my abuser. And so every time she would sneak out to be with my siblings, um, you know, I was experiencing the abuse. Um, and what was really hard growing up is that we would only get together on Mother's Day or on Christmas. And, you know, my older siblings, they were known as my cousins. And they were so loving and so kind. And, you know, I, I remember just always like being, you know, close to them, but not knowing what the secret was until ultimately it unraveled. What was that like for you when you actually found out that these were your actual brothers and sisters? I think for me was confusion. And, and even by the time that I found out, you know, that they were my real siblings, I was already experiencing the abuse. Mm. My parents had a very violent relationship. And then on top of this, we were having the birth of a terrorist movement in Peru. So there was a lot of hyperinflation. There was a lot of chaos around my life. And so for me, I was trying to you know, find answers. I was trying to get to the truth. And if anything, I kind of was surprised, if almost like, wow, I have other siblings. Mm. Um, and then understanding the complexities of, you know, the drama that my father's way of being created was ultimately very hurtful. How old were you when you realized that what you were going through in adulthood was related to what had happened in your childhood? Well, I came to this country trying to outrun my past. I, I actually, if anything, I came to the States with a scholarship, and I, the, the, it was almost like escape. You know, when I told my mother what had happened to me, and I unfortunately didn't tell her until I was 15, um, so I went from the ages of 10 to 15 on my own, pretty much blaming myself, um, that, you know, she took me to a psychiatrist. They did a bunch of tests, and they were like, I think she's better off leaving the country. 
And so for me, it was like, okay, coming to America, you know, a way to start new. I, I remember, you know, seeing 90210 and feeling that, you know, life in the States is going to be perfect. And, you know, so I, you know, and I, I ended up going to the Amish country in uh, Pennsylvania. So that yes. <laughs> so great in the book when you, you show up at the Philadelphia airport and you're like, hello, I am Sylvia and I'm from Peru and yes. I'm going to college and you, you find your way to the Amish country. It's, it's one of my favorite lies. It's like, hello, I'm Sylvia from Peru and I'm going to Millersburg University of Pennsylvania. And they're like, wait, what? And nobody, I mean, and I figured like University of Pennsylvania, you know, Millersburg University of Pennsylvania, it should be like an annex or something close. But, um, but yeah, definitely was a very unique start in, in life in America. <laughs> Well, lest people get the idea that this book is only focusing on uh, on trauma that you that you endured, you've also done some really amazing mountaineering, which we want to talk about when we come back from this short break. This is Livewire Radio. We are talking to Sylvia Vasquez Lovato about her book In the Shadow of the Mountains. We'll be back with much more in just a moment. Thank you. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we, we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to Sylvia Vasquez Lovato about uh, her uh, new book, In the Shadow of the Mountain. When did the idea first enter your head to try to climb Mount Everest? <laughs> well, you know, I call myself an accidental mountaineer. I come from a country that is known by its gorgeous mountain ranges. But it never appealed to me. You know, we always saw it as only the toughest of the tough could do it. And I even remember, I think we one of the very few trips that we did with my family, we went to uh, El Huascaran, and we tried to take a family photo in a boulder. And it was a five-feet boulder, and I freaked out. <laughs> and I had a massive meltdown, and from then I was curious. Like, I'm never trying that. 
Um, but it was interesting because I was, my life was spiraling out of control. I already had gotten a DGY, I had been sent to jail, you know, and that hadn't stopped me. And I hit a point in which my baby brother found me passed out at the entrance of my home. And it felt that I had been, like, you know, I couldn't hide anymore. So I asked for help and I told my mom, you know, I, I need help. She's like, come down to Peru, you're, you're going to do something that your cousin is going to help you with. It's called ayahuasca. <laughs> and, and so my mother was a very conservative woman. I mean, you know, we'll go to church. And so I'm like, okay, we're going to do ayahuasca. First of this all, was, by the way, the most wholesome ayahuasca, <laughs> yeah. most family-oriented yes. family ayahuasca family. trip of all time. They, like, pick you up. They yeah. take you out to the place. Everyone's like, we're really rooting for Sylvia with this out-of-body experience. I mean, well, who does ayahuasca with their parents? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is very interesting. But, but so that was quite unique. And, and so, of course, I'm, like, you know, feeling, I mean, like many of us, I'm just like, okay, great. I'm going to have a vision of the people that are causing all this damage in my life. Because I wasn't ready to, to really admit that myself. So I'm just like, okay, let me see who am I going to see? Who are all those negative forces? And I'm doing the ayahuasca, and the very first person that appears is me as a little girl. The little girl that I had ignored through all my years that I had run away from Peru, the, the life that I had wanted to disappear. And so I see her, I see her fragility, and all she wanted was reconnection with my adult self. And so I remember like embracing her and feeling that wholesomeness, and there was something powerful. And as we're doing this, then I hear this rumbling around us, and these mountains took shape. And my little girl grabs my hand and starts taking me into mountains. And so that was a powerful vision that I had on, on this episode with ayahuasca. And so I'm a Virgo. I can be very square. And I figured, you know what? Why don't I? I could have looked at it and been like the metaphor of life, walk the mountains you know, of life with my little girl. But I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's put this into action. And I'm like, if I need to bring this massive pain why don't I bring it to the most massive mountain in the world? Why don't I walk to the base of Everest? And of course, I never had done anything like that. I, I had never you know, hiked before. I didn't have any of the gear. But, but there was something powerful about how that vision came from something so sacred and so innocent of me that I figured, like, I have nothing to lose. So, you know, I just did what any normal person would do. I, you know, I decided sure. to attempt <laughs> to just walk to the base of Everest. <laughs> We're talking to Sylvia Vasquez Lovato here on Livewire. Uh, the book is In the Shadow of the Mountain. So, I mean, then you've gone on to have this incredible kind of mountaineering career and, and established this, this record of being the first openly gay woman to climb the Seven Summits. What do you think has made you so good at mountaineering from such an inauspicious start of not wanting to get on that boulder? Yeah, I, I think, you know, for there are a couple of things, I mean... First of all, I never saw climbing as a way of conquering. You know, the very first time I came across the Himalayas, I felt a safety, I felt a sense of belonging that I had never experienced in my life. And something completely just broke. You know, any, any darkness that I had kind of felt that I was being held. And that's what it is, almost like my shadow. All, all those secrets, all that pain was nothing in comparison to the power of the mountain. And so the way that I've taken into climbing has always been as a way of reverence, of respect, of actually connection. And, and so that takes away from, I mean, from me the pressure of ego. 
I always say I don't conquer anything because when you are in these massive mountains, we're so tiny. Mm. First of all, these things have been information for millions of years. We're just passing by. So, like, we're going to conquer who? I mean, the <laughs> mountain is looking at us going like, oh, really? I'm going to put a little storm and you're going to be blowing off a, off a mountain. <laughs> so, so there is a sense of me of humility that I, that I come through this. And I think that has allowed me to almost feel as if I'm going in a temple. And it makes experience very fulfilling. And what I've really enjoyed is the opportunity of getting to know myself more. I mean, I was going through this, and I learned from the very early start that you can't do this while drunk, <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit like your vision is quite impaired. So you and, tried that. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> one of those things is like you get a headache, and you're like, oh, my God, what am I throwing up? Um, but if anything, mountains kept me safe, and mountains kind of saved my life. Do you think physically, though, you have some kind of gift, whether it's lung capacity or just tenacity? Because, I mean, a lot of people have tried these things that you have done, and they have they've quit, and you didn't. Is that just sheer willpower? What do you attribute that to? I think stubbornness, I would call it. <laughs> you are a Virgo, <laughs> as a you Virgo, reveal. Yes. <laughs> I think it's stubbornness. Um, it's, it's actually just a perseverance. It's a curiosity. I mean, what I get in mountains in nature is awe. You know, and it is proven that three days in nature starts rewiring of the brain. So most of these expeditions, you know, usually go over a week. And because I have found so much inspiration and safety that, you know, by the fourth day, I'm kind of connected. And it's almost like, you know, the curiosity about, let's see how far we can go. Are you just unfazed now by pooping outside? <laughs> It's in the book, by it the way. Is, yeah. uh, I call myself the woman who shit her pants. So you, you, you <laughs> know, yeah. and, and, and I'm proud of saying that. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I look at it as, as, a, as a new kind of comfort. So, you know. <laughs> um, now, even after you climbed Everest, you were still actively drinking. Yes, I was. So how was it that you came back from that intense experience and were like, but I'm still going to rely on this, on this drug to try to alter my kind of feelings? Well, you know, the amount of euphoria, um, especially after a lot of the summits, there was a sense of celebration. And, and of course, there was a way of like, I mean, you just have all this adrenaline and it'll be like, ah, you know, how to do it. And I mean, it is great that we finished the book at the top of Everest because huh. if people would know coming down... You know, I still had, like, I party for, like, three days. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, but the beauty, I mean, now I've been four years sober. Um, but Congratulations, you know, well, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think at the time, for me, you know, I felt that I still had control over my drinking. Mm. So even after coming back and partying, I felt like, well, I've done this amazing thing. And, you know, maybe, maybe a little celebration. Let me give myself a little time to, you know, good job for doing this, for exposing my life. Um, you know, my year after climbing Everest, on my anniversary, I ended up having a bike accident. I ended up on the ICU and the doctors found a brain tumor. They couldn't determine if it was cancerous or benign for a couple of days. My mother had died of cancer, so I'm like, and we've had it in the family. So I, I told myself, well, you know, it could be my time to go. And the very first thing that came into my life was gratitude. I, I remember being like, God, you know, I've had such an amazing life with all the ups and downs. I've seen some of the most beautiful sunrises, sunsets. I've seen this uninhibited dawn. And I figured like, well, if it's my time to go, you know, I'll quit my job tomorrow and I'll spend the rest of my time trying to work with young girls, trying to climb, and trying to share my story. 
So I remember putting myself a little bit of purpose, yet I still had to finish that last mountain, which was Denali. And after I was done with it, I, I remember I came down and I had a bad episode of drinking. And I, I just told myself, okay, you just completed this thing. You know, it's either one more drink or your life. And so I decided to take, you know, a closer look to my addiction and to figure, okay, where is the pain? And a dear friend of mine recommended me to take these incredible classes on compassion, like self-compassion, and that completely changed my life. And it actually allowed me to start walking my talk. And I felt, okay, now if I can, if I can actually, if I want to be able to share my story, and if I want to be able to do it in a vulnerable way that I can even walk my talk, I need to like face this demon, you know, for once and for all. And, and it's been one of the most beautiful gifts. And so writing this book has truly saved my life in, in that way. Wow. A, a lot of this book, a lot of the parts about the trauma have to do with secrecy in your family and also you feeling this tremendous sense of shame and trying to keep secrets together, whether it was the trauma that you went through as a child or your drinking or what have you. I mean, was, was climbing Mount Everest or was climbing the Seven Summits more difficult than putting all of that information into this book that now, you know, lots and lots of people are going to read and hear about? I, you know, kind of reliving pretty much the book was the hardest thing. You know, first of all, I hadn't opened those chapters. I mean, I hadn't opened a lot of those experiences. Um, and I was doing it while sober. And so there was no word for me to hide. And that's the one thing I'm so proud about the book. It's almost like I, I think I overshared too much. I mean, my family's not too happy. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, for me, it was somebody needed to say things that sometimes we don't want to say. And being able to bring out shame and secrecy out of the shadows and put it out there. So it was really tough. But, you know, I knew, I mean, this is a, this is a book that I wish I would have read after getting out of, getting out of one of the ER sessions. I, I, I mean, I wish I would have been able to find a story of somebody who was that vulnerable and that open. And so that's something that has filled me with pride. It was hard, but I had a lot of help. I mean, I, I had my therapy and I love that. And, and one of my biggest realizations is how much information we store in our bodies. Sure. It is amazing when, when, if we're really committed to trying to find out, you know, things that maybe have caused a lot of pain in us, the information is in us. And actually, it made me really sad to see, mm. you know, how much self-destruction I was, I was doing to myself. Well, it's amazing to hear uh, what you've come through. And I think it's really kind of inspirational to other people who've experienced trauma in their life. I'm wondering, would you say the takeaway from this book is that everyone should do ayahuasca? <laughs> yes. Everybody should do ayahuasca. No. <laughs> but no, the, the, the reality, I think, is, you know, this is a story, even though it comes across as a mountaineering story, it is a story of all of us. You know, we all have experienced shame, you know, a little bit of, I mean, loss, grief, addiction. I mean, and there's a lot of aspects. I mean, this is, this is a book that reflects a lot of our different stages. And the biggest invitation is, you know, I know by the time you finish this book, you're going to be inspired 
to kind of ask yourself, okay, so what's, what's my next, like what's my inner mountain? What's my outer mountain? I mean, what it is beautiful about the whole story within the book, it's almost like this beautiful healing circle. Mm. You know, it's, it's a combination of common humanity, how the power of all of us being able to heal in community, how when we're willing to hear our stories, and especially just even being willing to take a walk in nature, the power and the transformative experience that we can all do it. I mean, it's a roller coaster ride that people are really going to enjoy. The book is In the Shadow of the Mountain, Sylvia Vasquez Lovato. Thanks for coming on no, Livewire. Thank you so much. Special thanks this episode to Roger Meyer of Beaverton, Oregon. Roger is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our program with a donation each month, which we're very thankful for because it's how we're able to keep doing the show. Turns out it's extremely it's relevant to the mission of the show in that it allows us to keep having a show. So thank you so much, Roger, for supporting Livewire this week. You're listening to Livewire. Of course, each week we ask the Livewire listeners a question. In honor of Sylvia Vasquez Lovato's mountaineering skills, we asked the Livewire listeners, what's your personal Mount Everest? They sent in those responses. Elena has been collecting them up. What are you seeing? Okay, uh, how about this one from Ron? Ron's personal Mount Everest. Oh, I feel this so hardcore. <laughs> Sticking to my physical therapy home exercises. I know when you think of Mount Everest, you think of these like completely insurmountable goals. And it's funny because a physical therapy home exercise is usually pretty short and sweet and simple. I'll be darned if it's like all I can do to get myself to do these tiny things every day that, uh, you know, will keep my spine in decent shape for the next 30 years. I can't do it. <laughs> well, that's why, of course, you would often go to the office where the physical therapist works so that they can stand right next to you and be like, you have to do that, Elena, even if you don't want to. Yeah. So, yeah. Or you like, know, yeah. without them looming over you, it's probably a lot harder to kind of like find the determination in yourself. Yeah, I got to do it. Uh, apparently, I'm just going to have like powder for vertebrae if I don't like lay on my back and pretend to blow up a balloon while doing half a sit up every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> What's another personal Mount Everest one of our listeners wanted to talk about? Oh, how about this one from Marie? Being able to fully make the bed while a cat is sleeping on it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm close. I'm very close to being able to do this. Yeah. But like there's some kind of rule that when a kitty is just curled up like an adorable little fuzzy donut, it doesn't matter. What is there <laughs> that is hardwired into us from, I don't know, natural selection, that if there is a cat that's sleeping in an adorable way, we will do everything and anything to not disturb it. I mean, the cat doesn't pay rent. Yeah. The cat, <laughs> like, the cat will go sleep somewhere. It's not a baby. You know, like, I get if you have a baby that's sleeping, that yeah. baby continuing to sleep is probably going to define whether or not this day is survivable for you as the parent. Yes. <laughs> the cat's just going to go somewhere else, but it's like, don't don't wake the baby. Don't, don't interrupt yeah. the cat's busy schedule of napping. <laughs> 
Uh, what's one last personal Mount Everest from one of our listeners? Oh, here's one from Meredith. I want to know if you think you could do this one. Meredith's personal Mount Everest is attending a two-week silent meditation retreat. Wow. Did you do it? I don't think so. Although I did take a two-second pause. I know. <laughs> So that's like, like how far of the way is that? If I can do two seconds, how many times do I have to do that before it's been two weeks? Well, on radio, a two-second thing feels like two, feels really long. two weeks. So, yeah, you could drive a truck through that pause, and that counts as your silent meditation. I, I think it would be really difficult for me. But I don't just, like, go with – I should try to do an hour of silence. I go right from, like, right. two seconds to – can I do four months right. on the side of a mountain? <laughs> can I never talk again? Can I become yeah. a mime? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone who uh, wrote in to answer our listener question this week. We've got another one for next week's show, uh, which we'll reveal at the end of this week's program. So stick around for that. In the meantime, let's get our next guest onto the show. He's a stand-up comedian and writer who's really done it all. Um, he puked after doing a cake stand <laughs> on the stand-up comedy show Flophouse. Uh, he traveled through an Ebola checkpoint for a segment on Vice News. And uh, he's appeared alongside Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein on Portlandia. He's also performed on Comedy Central. Let's take a listen to some comedy from Curtis Cook, recorded in front of our audience at the Alberta Rose Theater last month. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, I've been inside my apartment for two years. This is the most white people I've been around. And I'm terrified. <laughs> but thank you for having me. <laughs> I, I got married over the pandemic, uh, which was really exciting. Thank you. Uh, well, the thing was, we've been together for a long time. Uh, before I asked her to be my wife, I was nervous. I wanted to get it right the first time. And so we've been married for one year, but we just celebrated our ninth year anniversary. We got a good relationship, but my wife uh, is a little bit richer than I am. So we have, I have a hard time taking her out, making her feel like a special lady because of how she grew up. So like, like when my parents, for their 15th wedding anniversary, they went to the Olive Garden. So I just grew up thinking that the Olive Garden was a five-star restaurant. <laughs> And I believe that until I was 22 years old, my rich roommate's parents took me to an actual five-star restaurant. I said out loud in complete earnest, oh my God, this is even better than the Olive Garden. <laughs> but the one place we could never afford to go to growing up was the Red Lobster. So I was like, I'm gonna take my girl to the fanciest restaurant I can think of, but I wanted it to be a surprise. So all I said was, hey baby, you gotta wear a dress where I take you this weekend. <laughs> And then she put on a dress. I wore a suit because I just assumed you had to wear a suit to the Red Lobster. And it turns out you do not need to wear a suit to the Red Lobster. And if you do, everyone assumes you're the manager of that Red Lobster. <laughs> so we ate for free. <laughs> and she was a good sport. She didn't make me feel broke or nothing. I didn't realize I messed up till the next day. Her father called and said, hey, where'd your husband take you for your anniversary? And with intimidation in her voice, she said, dad, he took me to the Red Lobster. Her father said, well... You can always move back home if you need to. <laughs> and then my father called me and said, hey, boy, do you take a girl for your anniversary? And it was pride. I was like, Dad, I took her to the Red Lobster. My father said, goodness gracious, you must really love that woman. <laughs> I should go on record. My father has never said goodness gracious in his life, but I was told to keep it FCC appropriate. <laughs> 
but she... <laughs> But she's a good person. We've been having a lot of life experiences together over the I should say before I tell this next joke that I'm a black person, but I'm the type of black person that has to announce it to the crowd before I do a race joke. Otherwise, everybody's like, yo, this Indian kid is super racist. <laughs> like, I'm aware I look like the Taliban's jazz instructor. <laughs> But before the pandemic, my wife and I, we had this dream that one day we'd be able to go see the world together, but we never thought it would really happen. And finally, we saved up enough to go across the world and we decided to go to Africa. Because here as black Americans, you go to Africa, you get a deeper understanding of your place in the world. We decided to go to Sierra Leone because it's the cheapest place we could get to in Africa. And then we learned that because race works differently in different cultures and because me and my wife are both so light-skinned, we are considered white people in Sierra Leone. And it was the greatest vacation I've ever taken in my life. Like, if you haven't been white before, you've never lived. Like, I was just walking around. People were giving me the benefit of the doubt. Like, and at one point, this old African man explained slavery to me because he thought I'd never heard of it before. He's like, what happened is your people stole my people and took them to America where they're still not treated equally today. And I couldn't think of anything smart, so all I said was, that's crazy. <laughs> and this is something nobody ever warned me about. Being white goes straight to your head. Like, I've been black in America for 31 years and frequently I'm frustrated, like, yo, why don't these people do more and they know their complacency is the root of the problem. I was white in Africa for three days before I was like, why would I change a perfect system? <laughs> it was a quick fall from grace because I came back to America, I forgot I wasn't white anymore. A TSA agent was like, excuse me, sir, I need to go through your bags. I was like, do you know who I am? <laughs> I just started saying white nonsense, like, unhand me. You can't. <laughs> unhand me is the second whitest sentence in the world. The first is, I live in Portland. <laughs> hey, thank y'all for coming out to the show. Enjoy the rest of your night. Curtis Cook, everybody. That was Curtis Cook right here on Livewire. You can check out his website, curtiscookcomedy.com to find out when he will be in a town near you. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be back with music from Patterson Hood. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarella. Our musical guest this hour is probably best known as co-founder, the frontman and songwriter for the critically acclaimed Southern rock band, Drive-By Truckers. They're heading out on tour this spring from Natchez, Mississippi to Dublin, Ireland, and everywhere in between. Before 
Launching back out on the tour, though, Patterson Hood was nice enough to stop by the Alberta Rose Theater to play us a song accompanied by his friend Chris Funk from the Decemberists on the Dobro. Take a listen to this. Patterson, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. I was reading an interview that you did in uh, Bitter Southerner. Right. Which is a real thing, yeah, by the that's way. Great. It's actually really it's actually it's a really, really good. interesting yeah. magazine that I wasn't familiar with until this week. And what it really highlighted for me was a strain of Southerners who are from this part of the country where there's a lot of traumatic and racist history and, and terrible histories, but people who are pushing back against that and you know, they're like from a part of the world and of that part of the world, but not completely defined by it. Like, how do you relate to your, you're from Alabama, right? Sure. How sure. do you relate to your Southernness? Yeah. And, and I, I grew up, you know, I grew up during a particularly bad time of that because I grew up during the Wallace era. And, uh, but, you know, I was also, and maybe my dad was a musician who made his living playing on Aretha Franklin records and stuff. So I grew up with a very, atypical kind of childhood there and and at the same time you know as much as gets made of the south versus the rest of the country it's 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 so often more urban rural you know i mean you can go five miles in any direction and it's not that different in a lot of ways culturally than where i came from you know sure I was looking at some of the photos um, of, on your website and on Twitter and places of the recent tour that you, you kind of went back out and did some touring, and I know people were so excited to see you, and you were selling out shows left and right. Drive-by truckers have such a um, fervent and loyal fan base. I'm curious if you have Bless theories. them, yeah. <laughs> Do you have theories about what it is about your music that just connects to its fans so intensely? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know, I know the music I connect to, and I can maybe pinpoint why in some cases on that but I, as far as i'm just i'm i'm grateful that people like our band but i i sometimes don't know why <laughs> but, uh, but, well, but. i'm one of those huge fans for 15 plus years and i think it's because you see your relationships on stage when y'all play together like you see right. long-term friendships and musical friendships and years years of touring and and it it, it's such a surprise and it's so fun every well, show thanks. to see the interaction. That's what I think. I mean, I'll say that my partner, like the senior partner in the band, uh, Cooley, Cooley and I have been playing together for 37 years this August. And, uh, wow. it's pretty amazing. Woo! I mean, you know, and, uh, I think I was 21 and he was about to turn 19 when we started playing together. And so, uh, and, and uh, you know, now we have, kids that are almost grown and and uh you know we actually we actually get along better now than we ever did i mean we actually have a, i mean we've we've gotten along a long time but we get along really well and and i mean like the new guy in the band just hit 10 years so, so you know <laughs> wow. we, we, and we've had the truckers was our fourth band together because we had three bands before that and uh uh the longest one of which Adam's house cat we did for like six years when we were, that was our first band. And, you know, we were like a, a, a dismal failure as far as on any kind of commercial sense, but you know, it also taught us how to do what we do. So, mm-hmm. well, speaking of what you do, can we uh, hear a song? Yeah, let's do that. All right. <laughs> what, uh, what are we going to hear? I did start 
writing towards the end of the pandemic and uh, wrote some songs that are coming out on a record this summer. The, the truckers have a new record. We recorded it last summer, and uh, I'm going to do a song from that. <clears throat> All right, Patterson Hood and Chris Funk here on Livewire. <laughs> I wrote this song for my buddy Jimmy C who passed away in 2020. The song's called Shake and Pine. Missing Alabama claw above the bank. 
bangs and lashes and we saw it all Reaching for the stars but only catching dust That was Patterson Hood from Drive-By Truckers along with Chris Funk from The Decemberists. Patterson and the Drive-By Truckers are on tour now. You can find out where they're going to be at by going to drivebytruckers.com. All right, before we skedaddle this week, a little preview of next week's show, uh, we are heading underground. First up, we're going to be talking to comedian Chris Gethard about how the underground punk scene was sort of formative in developing his comedy style. Also, he put out a new comedy special, which was very DIY, this tour that he went on. That was right before the pandemic, but we'll talk about that. Then we're going to be talking earthworms with science writer Julia Rosen. Not just any earthworms, jumping earthworms that may, in fact, take over parts of America and endanger the maple syrup supply. Ooh. Which is, you know, what got me listening to the whole thing. Then we are going to uh, dig in with our pal Shaky Graves about his attempt to be an actor before he decided to focus on music. As always, we are also going to be looking to get your response to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? What's something that you're into that you wish hadn't gotten so popular? Ah, mm. yes. It's been a long time since I got into anything before the wider culture. <laughs> it was like a big thing for me in my teens and 20s was knowing about the thing, you know, yeah. before everyone else knew about it. The I like their early stuff. <laughs> All right. If you have a thought on that, something that you're into that you wish maybe didn't get quite so popular, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We're at Live Wire Radio out there on various social media platforms. All right. That is going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Sylvia Vasquez Lovato, Curtis Cook, and Patterson Hood, plus Chris Funk. Live Wire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, A.L. Alves, Alex Rodokovich, and Mike Gamble. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the James F. And Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Roger Meyer of Beaverton, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review 
Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 